Last week we spoke of our need for a spiritual unity, which I refer to as relational unity. This week, Paul's going to continue to speak on the importance of our unity. We're still talking about unity. How one, or forgive me, uh, we're still talking about how unity is such an important aspect to how we live our lives. Living our lives in light of the gospel, one of the most important things we do to give Christ a good name is to be unified. But we're going to take a slight shift from last week. As last week, we spoke of our need for a relational, spiritual unity. This week, we're going to focus on our doctrinal unity. Paul wants us to be unified, not just in soul and spirit and heart, but in our minds. Paul wants us to be unified in our beliefs, in our creeds, in our religion. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And then when you have gotten there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Thus says the Lord, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Paul makes a really sudden and quick shift from our need for relational unity to our need for doctrinal unity. And you can hear him emphasizing oneness or unity throughout these few verses because the most often repeated word in this is one. One, 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 one. Paul wants us to see that the reason we need to be unified in our relations with one another is so that it is consistent with the Christian religion, which is a singular, unified religion. We need to be unified in relation because our religion is inherently a unified, singular religion. Now, what do I mean by that? In what way is Christianity as a religion unified? What do we mean when we talk about the oneness of Christianity? Well, Paul goes on to list seven doctrines of unity to emphatically prove his point. He goes on to list seven doctrines within the Christian faith where there is only one of them and there's only one really way to understand them. He, let, let's just briefly go through these one by one, all seven, but we will make application to them at the end. But he begins in verse 4, there is the first one, there is one body. Christianity is unified in that there is only one body. And we know that this is a reference to the church. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ, and he's going to do that at the end of Ephesians as well. So when we talk about the body, we're talking about the church, and there's only one of them. There's only one people of God. There's only one kingdom of God. There's not two peoples. God doesn't have two peoples. He doesn't have the Jews and then also the church. He doesn't have this church, but then I've also got this church, and they're saved like this, and they're saved like this. There's one church. There's one people that make up God's kingdom. By the way, we've talked about, this is 
the, the problems that the Reformed position that our church takes has with what we call dispensationalism. A little while ago, we preached a sermon against dispensationalism. And I, I don't have time to, to remind you of all the details of dispensationalism, but the primary, in my opinion, the primary problem of dispensationalism is that they end up creating two peoples of God. Because they say the Jews, ethnic Israel, they're still the people of God, but in order to make them jealous, God created another people called the church. And then once the church gets the Jews on track, then God will take the church off the earth and he's back to the Jews. And so in the dispensationalist scheme, God really has two people. And we're saying, no, there is one body. There's not two. It's not the church and the Jews. There's one. Jew and Gentile come together in the church. The church is Christ's only people. There's only one body. This is why we agree there's a famous quotation that was made by a very early church father. And throughout the centuries, it's become very controversial because different traditions have applied it in different ways. But there's this phrase, there is no salvation outside of the church. And we agree with that. Now, I don't agree with every application that's ever been drawn from that phrase in church history. But we agree that there is no salvation outside of the church. God saves his people. That's whom God saves. He saves his church, his body. So you're either in or you're out because there's no other body. If you're not in the Christian church, you're not saved. There is no salvation outside of the church. There is one body. By the way, that's why we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if you caught it. The Holy Catholic Church. Not a Holy Catholic Church. Not one of God's many Holy Catholic Churches. The there is one church on earth. There is only one body. But he moves on from that. Not only is there only one body, there is, verse 4, one body and one spirit. This is a natural flow of thought. You have one body, physically, right? You have one body. And so with your one body, God gave you one spirit, right? You don't have multiple souls, you don't have multiple spirits. It's not like your left hand has one soul and your right hand has another soul. Your feet have a spirit and your chest has a spirit. No, you have one body and therefore God has given you one spirit. And so Paul's making that analogy. This is the same thing in Christian religion. If there's only one body, if, if God only has one body, then how many spirits are there? One. There is only one Holy Spirit. This is why in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul can tell people who believe in false religion but have had these amazing emotional movements. Sometimes people in false religions even do miracles. And they say, look, I'm filled with the Spirit. And Paul is willing in 2 Corinthians 11 to say, no, you're filled with a Spirit. But that's not the Spirit. There's only one. There's only one Spirit. Every single person in this room, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the same Holy Spirit within you as everybody else. There is one Spirit that unites the body who fills the church. He fills us both as individuals, and then as we come together, He then fills us as a body. So Paul emphasizes the unity of the body of Christ through emphasizing the unity of our spirit. And this is a classic thing for Paul. Paul loves to do this. Just one example. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. There's not one Holy Spirit for the Jews and one for the Gentiles, one for the church, one for Israel. We all get the same Holy Spirit. And why? Because there's only one of them. <laughs> God doesn't have more Holy Spirits to give you. There's only one. 
But that's not the only oneness aspect of our religion. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. And this is all consistent with what? Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is only one hope that belongs to our call to be Christians. There is only one hope at the end of our calling, and we call this salvation. We all experience the same salvation. I think we could be even more specific here and say that our one hope is heaven. All Christians have the same hope. We all have the same future glory awaiting us. We are all united in death. We're all going to die. But then we're all going to be united after death in the same place, in the same glory, in the same resurrection. God doesn't have multiple heavens. The really, really good people are going to go to heaven A, and the, ah, the kind of good people, they'll go to heaven B, and then uh, the kind of lousy Christians like call in heaven C, right? Gonna, he's not going to do that. We're all awaiting the same glory, the same resurrection. We are united in one hope, the same reward. But again, he doesn't even end there. That's only three of seven. Verse four, for, forgive me, verse four, for beginning of verse five, sorry. He then begins a new triad. So we just covered three, and then there's another triad. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This verse has become very famous. Uh, it's not uncommon to read a theological book or to hear a theological speaker and have them at some point recite to you, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it kind of makes sense. It rolls off your tongue so easily, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of a really quick, easy little phrase? One Lord, one faith. It's, it's almost got a rhythm to it. And that's not coincidental. Uh, the, the vast majority of scholars who have ever studied the book of Ephesians have grammatically, contextually understood that Paul is most likely quoting from one of the Ephesians' own church creeds here. This is a creed that Paul is taking from the church of Ephesians and he's quoting it directly. He's, in other words, Paul's saying, if you don't, if you don't uh, agree with me, let me remind you, you've been confessing this all along. You guys already know this. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's quoting and adopting a creed. Which leads to, before we, let me get off track for just a moment. This is a really important side note. This is why we believe it is a good thing for us as a church to do what we just did. To recite extra biblical outside of the Bible. The Apostles' Creed is not a Bible verse. The Nicene Creed is not a Bible verse. These are extra-biblical creeds that we bring into our church and use to worship. And lots of people, not, not like cynics, it's a good question. Lots of people have had genuine curiosity. Why would you do that? Like you've got a whole book of God's revelation. What's the point of bringing in man's word into your worship service? And more than that, why do creeds at all? Where does the Bible tell us to recite a creed in order to worship me? And so there will develop among some Christians this very anti-creedal mentality. But we believe all of the Bible, and sometimes that means believing the subtleties of the Bible. And one of those subtleties is Paul is quoting from a creed here. So what does that tell you Paul is okay with in church? Reciting creeds, right? Paul was the pastor of a church that wrote their own creed and recited it. So we actually see an apostolic witness here to the value of bringing creeds and confessions into our church. So that you can remember when you're tempted to dislocate the body of Christ, no, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. You memorize that, you remember that, you don't let the Mormons take you away from that. You don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses take you away from that. That's the value of our creeds. Paul has given us permission. But back to the point, 
Let's look at this little creedal statement. In verse 5, he begins with one Lord. This is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ, whom God, as Philippians 2 tells us, has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is, as we often say, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And we say that because there's ultimately only one Lord. Ultimately, there's only one king. This is vital to understanding the Christian faith. After all, people are unified by authorities. That's just how life works. One of the most easy ways for any person to be unified with another person on earth is to have a shared authority. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us here are fellow Americans. Our citizenry has unified us. But in order for that to make sense, we all have to affirm the same authorities. We all have the same governor. We all have the same president. If someone came in here and said, uh, my president is not Joe Biden, my, president, or my governor is not uh, Michelle Grisham, then we would not believe that they're Americans. Maybe they're here on a work visa, or maybe they're here illegal. I don't know. But you can't be an American if you don't submit to the American authorities, right? Authorities unify people. Maybe another example is I cannot claim someone as my biological brother and sister if they have different parents than me. We can be adopted into the same family, but we cannot be biologically brothers and sisters if we have different dads and different moms. Right? You get one last example. You can't be on the same team if you have different coaches. Right? That just can't, how, do you, how does that work? You can't be a part of the same company as you have different bosses. You get the point. Unity oftentimes comes through a shared authority. One of the most important ways that Christians are unified is we all have the same king. Jesus. He's your Lord and he's my Lord. I guess that makes us citizens. Fellow citizens. Together. You see the way the Lordship of Christ unifies all of us under his rule? It is so important to the Christian faith that we affirm Jesus is the Lord of Lords. There is no one on his level. There is no one above him. Everyone else is under him. He has full dominion of the entire cosmos. There is no shared dominion. Why? Because how many lords are there? There's one. There's only one Lord. But he also tells us that there's one faith. This word here, the, the Bible uses the word faith in a lot of different ways. Here the word faith is basically being used synonymously with the word religion. And we use this all the time, right? We ask people, oh, what, what, what faith do you belong to? Do you belong to the Muslim faith? Do you belong to the Christian faith? Do you belong to... You see the word faith is oftentimes used to encompass an entire doctrinal body of ideas. And Paul is saying here, there's only one religion. There's only one true religion. If there's only one church... If there's only one spirit, there's only one Lord, then it would make sense then that there's only one true religion. There's not a bunch of other true religions out there. There's only one true religion. There's one faith. But he continues, there's one Lord, one faith, and then there's also one baptism. Right? Baptism is the entry into the faith. It's the doorway into the church. And if there's only one church, if there's only one faith, then you can't have different baptisms. Right? These people will be baptized. Those people don't need to be baptized. Well, they can baptize that way. They'll baptize that way. We've got lots of different baptisms because we've got lots of different faiths here. No, there's one faith. There's one Lord. So there's only one baptism. And so we see in this text that our baptisms very much are a symbol of our unity. 
You are a fellow baptized believer with me. That's part of the reason why we require baptism to come to the Lord's Supper. Because until you've been baptized, I have no reason to think you belong to the church. Because baptism is the entrance into the church and you've denied the entrance. You've said, I don't want to go in there. So why are you coming to the sacrament of the one church if you haven't walked through the only doorway that exists into the church? Baptism is an incredibly important source of unity for us. This is why sometimes throughout church history they have divided the world into the baptized and the unbaptized. Right? This becomes a symbol for those who belong to God and those who don't. There is only one baptism. The Jews don't have one initiation rite. The Gentiles have a different initiation rite. We all have the same initiation rite. So that's six. Let's get to the last one. And this one is climactic. Very climactic. He brings us all to our ultimate source. Verse six. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If there were many gods, if there were many fathers, perhaps there would be many religions. Perhaps there would be many churches. Maybe there would be more than one spirit. But there's only one God. There's only one Father. And so therefore we must all be united under one source of authority, one religion, one faith, one baptism. You see how our monotheism, our one God, becomes it has a trickle-down effect over everything else. The reason Christianity is such an exclusive, unified religion ultimately goes back to our claim that there is only one God. That as the Psalms say, all the other gods of the nations are idols. They don't exist. They can't exist because there's only one God. And Paul reminds us of the glory of this one God. What is he like? Where is he? One God and Father. He is your Father who is what? Over all and through all and in all. What a beautiful sentiment to end on. You want to know what's the best thing about belonging to the Christian church? Is that the only God that exists will exist over you, in you, and through you. He is near to us. Charles Hodge describes this to be filled with God to be pervaded by his presence and controlled by him is to attain the summit of all created excellence, blessedness, and glory. If you imagine your entire life story metaphorically as climbing Mount Everest, how do you know when you've gotten to the top? How do you know when you've reached the summit? It's when you are filled and pervaded by the essence of the only true God. This is the summit of all Christian experience. We all have the same God. Through Christ and the Holy Spirit, God lives in us and rules over us as our good Father. These are the seven doctrines which illustrate our oneness. The unity of the Christian religion, which then calls us to be one together. Our religion is an exclusive unified religion, so we need to be unified together. We need to come together as one. The fancy way to say it is that our subjective unity is a mirror reflection of our objective unity. Christianity is objectively true. It is an objectively true religion. It's unified whether you like it or not. It's unified whether you pretend it is or not. So we have an objective unity in our shared religion. And now that we have this objective unity, we need to live it out. We need to show the world that we have this unity through a subjective unity, which is our relationships together. 
So we see last week we talked about spiritual unity. You see how important having a shared religion is. The shared religion is actually the soil that our subjective relational unity grows from. In other words, what I'm saying is you really cannot ever have true unity with people of different faiths. I know that sounds harsh, but you can't have it. Only when we belong to that which is objectively unified can we then have a foundation to grow into subjective unity. I hope that makes sense. And so this is why Paul sees the severity of us being disunified. What Paul is trying to get us to see here is that when we are disunified, what we're ultimately doing is we're lying about the Christian faith. We're saying, with the way we live, with our disunity, we're actually signaling to the world, look, there are many gods. There are a lot of gospels. There's a lot of spirits. There's a lot of church. Because we're all our own individuals in here. This is why it is so important. Our disunity tells the world there are multiple saviors, multiple lords, multiple gospels. But when we are unified as one, the world sees that which is objectively true behind us, which there are not multiple gospels. There are not multiple gods. There are not multiple saviors. By the way, uh, we're not going to turn there now, but you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul makes this explicitly clear. Paul hears that in 1 Corinthians, he hears that these, this church is divided. There's factions and differences and arguments and bickering. And when Paul rebukes them, he gives a lengthy rebuke. But he asks this really key rhetorical question. He says, I hear that there are factions among you. I hear that there are divisions. And he asks them this rhetorically. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Can we cut Christ in half? Can we break Christ up into four different mini-Christs? Can we believe there are multiple Christs, multiple lords? No. Paul is rhetorically saying there is only one unified Christ. There's only one unified Lord. And to be a Christian means we're in Christ. So how can we not be unified? <laughs> when we are disunified, we tell the world there's at least two Jesuses, maybe more. We don't have to confess that with our mouths. We'll confess that with our actions. We will divide the Christ who cannot be divided. Our subjective unity is a, needs to be a reflection of our religious unity. Our objective unity. And so that leads us to what is the main idea? Like I've been harping on, on these seven doctrinal issues. Like, what do you, Tell me, pastor, what do you want me to get from this? Well, here it is. The primary idea of these three verses is this thesis. God desires that we be unified in doctrine. God desires that we be unified in doctrine. We need to have a shared religion. The closer our religion comes together, the more we as spirits, as individuals can come together. The more unified we are about who God is, what God has done, and what he has commanded of us, the more unified we can be in our relations and in our interactions. God desires that we be unified in doctrine. And the wonderful thing about how Paul has communicated this list to us is that this list not only tells us that we need to be unified by telling us that Christianity is unified, but it helps give us a small foretaste of some of these essential doctrines of Christianity. This helps gives us a, a taste of some of these central doctrines. What do I mean by central doctrines? What I mean is that there are some doctrines which are so definitional to the Christian faith 
that you cannot disagree with them and still be a Christian. There are other doctrines you can be wrong about, I can be wrong about, and we still belong to Christianity. We can, you can still belong to the faith if some of your doctrines are wrong. And by the way, this isn't in my notes, but maybe you're wondering how I can make a claim like that. Um, let me try to find it. Paul actually says this. We're going to preach on it not long from now in Ephesians chapter 4. Read with me beginning in verse uh, 11, and we'll find it somewhere along the way. Stay in Ephesians 4. Read with me beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Stop there. So notice what Paul's done. In verse 4, or forgive me, in verse 5, he tells us there's, there's only one faith. But then in verse 13, he tells us that it's natural that the Christian church is not completely and totally unified in this one faith. And that's why God gave us pastors and teachers in the Bible to help get us to that unity. So Paul does not think that we have to literally be unified on every single point of doctrine in order to be unified in the Christian religion. Otherwise, verse 13 makes no sense. We would tell Paul, Paul, we've already reached the maturity. We've already reached the unity. You told us that in verse 4. So clearly in Paul's mind, there are a, there is sets of doctrines that you, you, you cannot get wrong. And there's other things that we need time to get there for. We oftentimes in, in religious terms will refer to these as dogmas. The, the, typically, not everyone shares this definition, but typically the difference between doctrine and dogma is dogma is doctrine, but it's the doctrine you can't get wrong. It's the doctrine you can't get wrong. It's dogma. It's settled. There are other doctrines where we can disagree on them all day long and we're still going to go to heaven together. You can't get dogma wrong. And what Paul has done by giving us these core central doctrines of unity is he's helped give us a set of dogmas. If, if these are the doctrines that unify and tie the whole Christian faith together, then certainly they're foundational. So what Paul has done, if you're asking the question, okay, pastor, you told me God wants me to be unified in doctrine. Which doctrines? You see, there are people in this church, I disagree with them on some things. Is one of us going to hell now? We have a whole set. We can scour the Bible and we can put together in a creed or a confession the doctrines, the dogmas that must be believed. And I think Paul has given us seven of those here. Seven non-negotiable doctrines. But what I've done is I've, I've reduced them and reworded them to help make them a little bit more applicable. So that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time. That's how we're going to finish this sermon. What are some of the doctrines as application that we must be unified on in this church? What are some of the things that we, there is no room for disagreement or else we're in trouble? And Paul gives us that. So here's the first one. The doctrine of exclusivism. The doctrine of exclusivism. Go back to verse 4 with me. Read verses 4 and 5 with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The two I want us to focus on here is body and faith. There's only one church and there's only one religion. 
There's one body and there's one faith. What we are saying when we say there's only one true religion, there's only one people of God, is we are expressing a doctrine known as exclusivism. Christianity is an exclusive religion. What that means is that what we're saying is that you cannot be saved if you're not a Christian. We are excluding other religions from truth and from salvation. This is a non-negotiable. This is a non-negotiable. For example, there are people out there called universalists. Universalists believe every single person is going to go to heaven one day, no matter what. Every, every single human individual is going to go to heaven one day. We reject this not just as an error, but as a heresy. This is not just a wrong opinion. This is a damnable opinion. Because what it's ultimately doing is it is denying that there's only one faith and it is denying that there's only one Lord, which are cardinal doctrines of our religion. Muhammad is not your Lord. He can't save you. Buddha is not your Lord. He can't save you. To claim these people are going to go to heaven is to deny that there is one body, one faith, and one Lord. And you can't deny those things. We are in exclusive religion. Another heresy are the inclusivists. They're a little different from universalists and in that inclusivists will agree, yeah, some people will go to hell, but it's really just the atheists. It's just the non-religious people. But the inclusivists say all religions ultimately get you to heaven. All religions are just different paths up the same mountain that lead to the same summit. We are not inclusivists. There is only one body. There is only one faith. We believe that 99.9% .9 of every religion in the world is wrong. That's what we believe. And by the way, most of those religions believe the same thing. We are exclusivists. This, for example, so let me read to you a statement that we would very much disagree on. This comes from a document called Lumen Gentium, chapter 2, verse 16. This is something the Roman Catholic Church put out not long ago in one of their quote-unquote infallible councils. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace try in their actions to do his will as they know it through their dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. You know what we call that in this church? Heresy. That's heresy. If Rome ever wants to be united to the Protestants, they must repent of that. You cannot be saved by living in a false religion, a false country, and just trying really hard. Why? Because there's only one effort? No, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You cannot be saved outside of the Christian religion. You cannot be, there is no salvation outside of the church. We cannot have true religious unity with people of other religions. We can have relations, we, we can be friends with them. I'm not saying we're, we go on crusades and kill our neighbors and I'm not saying do any of that. We can be good friends with our non-Christian neighbors. But we do not have unity because they're outside the faith and there's only one. They're outside the body and there's only one. Exclusivism is a doctrine we maintain. Another one is the doctrine of baptism. Now, I'm not saying that we have to agree on every point of baptism, but that baptism is an essential aspect of the Christian life. We must agree on this. Therefore, people who have non-Trinitarian baptisms 
or people who reject baptism altogether cannot be considered Christians by us. If I meet a person who says, yeah, I love Jesus, I love Christianity, I love the gospel, but I, I think baptism was just for the first century, I think it was just for the Jews, there are people who say that. I, I, we don't need baptism. I don't want baptism. I'm not going to get baptized. That was just for the Jews. They're not Christians. They're not welcome as members in this church. There's one baptism, and they've said there's no baptism. And our baptism is supposed to be a point of unity. If they say the baptism was just for the Jews, then they've used baptism to divide us. There is one baptism that brings us together. And if you reject that, I don't know what else you might believe. You're not my brother. You cannot despise baptism in this church. We can disagree on different aspects of baptism. But the general position that Christians need to be baptized, that is a non-negotiable we must affirm our need to be baptized. And we only have unity with the baptized. That's our second cardinal doctrine. The third one I'm calling the resurrection. A cardinal doctrine of the Christian religion is that in, on judgment day, every single person, especially believers, will be bodily resurrected. There is a universal resurrection coming... And this is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. This is what verse 3 describes, or forgive me, what verse 4 describes as our hope. We were called to one hope that belongs to your call. And what is this hope that we have not achieved yet? We're hoping for it, right? You don't have it yet. So it's salvation. It's eternity. And the key area of glory and salvation, according to Paul, is the resurrection. What you should be looking forward to every day of your life, you wake up in the morning, you put your feet on the ground, and life is hard. Life is trying. What are you waiting for? Like, what are we so excited is going to happen? That Christ is going to come back? Yes, that's part of it. That's part of the eschatological end times view. But what we are primarily setting our hope in is the resurrection. We are not going to be disembodied spirits. We are going to be resurrected. You're going to have a body. This, believe it or not, is a cardinal doctrine. If somebody denies that there will be a resurrection of the dead, they are not Christians. If you want definitive proof of that, I want you to turn in your Bibles. Keep your marker here. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is going to make sure that we know how important this doctrine is. Turn back just a couple books. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look with me at verses 12 through 19. There was a Jewish sect known as the Sadducees, and they denied physical resurrection. And in the, there were many uh, ancient heresies in the early centuries of the church that also denied physical resurrection. And some of that apparently got into the church in Corinth. There were Corinthian Christians in the church who were claiming that there won't be a physical resurrection. We'll just maybe be spiritually embodied beings. But they denied there being a physical resurrection. And they started spreading that teaching around the church. And notice what Paul says of that belief, beginning in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to justify how because Christ has been raised, the rest is going to be raised. So here's what Paul does. Paul, Paul understands that to say there is no resurrection is a universal claim. You don't get to make exceptions. There's no resurrection well, except for uh, this person and this person and this person. There either, there either is resurrection or there isn't. And if you say there isn't, then you say Christ has not been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Christianity is a false, evil religion. And the apostles are all a bunch of liars. So you see the connection. If you deny your and my resurrection, then you logically deny Christ's resurrection, and then you therefore logically deny the Christian faith and deny God altogether. Do you see how serious it is to believe in our one shared hope that all of us, because Christ rose, are going to rise with him? that we are going to share in his resurrection, that you are not just going to be a soul floating in the ether playing an invisible harp, but your body is going to come out of the grave just like Christ's. This is a crucial doctrine. We read it in the Apostles' Creed. He will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come to bring us back from the dead. We cannot break up the hope of our resurrection by denying our resurrection. But there's more applications. You can go back to Ephesians. Not only is it a very, very serious sin to deny the physical resurrection of the church, what this also means is that we should not create a system where there are multiple afterlives for different people. That's a far greater error than most people realize. Why? Because there's one hope. There's only one heaven and one hell. Any religion that goes about creating all of these multiple hopes, these multiple afterlives, are false. The Mormons believe that there are three heavens. The celestial and the telestial and the, I can't remember what the third one is called. Depending on how good you were and how faithful you were to the church, you go to one of the three and the top one is the best and the second one is not quite as good, but it's really good. And the third one is still pretty great. You know what we call that in this church? Heresy. There's not three hopes. There's not hope A, B, and C. There's one hope. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in two heavens because Jehovah's Witnesses believe a misreading of the book of Revelation that only 144,000 people can be saved. And guess what? They claim that number's already been reached. So according to the Jehovah's Witness religion, you have no hope of salvation. The number's been reached. And they realize this is kind of a bad marketing strategy. Right? It's not very helpful to go door to door and call people to religion that can't save them anymore because all the tickets are sold out. So what they did is they created a second heaven. Those who are saved will spiritually live with God in heaven, the 144,000. The rest of you faithful Jehovah's Witnesses can't go to heaven, but you will live on earth and it will be a heaven-like experience. So don't worry, you can't go to heaven, but you can have heaven 2.0. You know what we call that in this church? Heresy. There's one hope. One resurrection. And all of this is tied. Why do we only have one hope? Because there's only one body. 
There's only one people. How can we have different hopes? You see what these different hopes do is they divide the body. You go into a Mormon church, it's not one body there. You've got the really, really good and the middle goods and the not very goods. You've split up the church, but there's only one church and there's only one Lord, so there's only one glory and we're all gonna share it because we're together, we're unified and God is never going to break us apart. That's why this matters. To claim there are multiple hopes is to claim there are multiple bodies, to claim there are multiple lords, to claim there are multiple gods. Doesn't it make sense to you now why Mormons are polytheists? Because you can't have two, three, four hopes with one God, one body, one Lord. Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to prepare a place for them in his father's house where there are many rooms, not many houses. We're all going to the same place. Yeah, we'll have our own rooms, metaphorically. It'll be some differences between us, but we're all living in the same house. There's one house because there's one people, because there's one Lord, because there's one faith, because there's one baptism, because there's one God. We can't deny our hope at the end. And number four, very, very important, another cardinal doctrine of the Christian religion is there is only one Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian if you deny the lordship of Jesus' ministry. The early Christians knew this better than anyone. I just want you to know. The first thing that brought intense persecution upon the Christian church from non-Jewish believers, from non-Jewish people, the first doctrine that Satan attacked was the lordship of Christ. You see, what was happening in the first century is the, the Romans didn't care if you didn't believe in the Roman gods, they didn't care. You could be whatever religion you wanted in the Roman society. They could not care less. There was only one thing that you cared about. Whatever God you believe in, Caesar's equal. You give your, 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 your sense of incense to Caesar. You pay tribute to Caesar. Okay, yeah, Caesar is Lord, and then I can worship Jesus in my private house as Lord also. And most religions were happy to make this compromise. Okay, yeah, Caesar is Lord, and then we'll go to our little cults and pagan sacrifices and do our thing. And there was a beautiful little symbiotic relationship between demons. And then the Christians came along and said, wait a minute, you want me to say Caesar is Lord with or above Jesus? Uh, no. Caesar has civil authority over me, but he is not Lord. And how do I know that? Because there's only one of them, and he ain't Caesar. I don't, I don't recommend the Marvel movies very often to people, but there was one line in one of the earlier Marvel movies that was really, really funny. And Thor, who's supposed to be a Greek god, is on an airplane with Captain America. And Captain America is about to jump off. And I don't remember all the dialogue. But in that, Thor claims to be a god. He says, I'm a god. And right before Captain America jumps off, he says, I don't know, there's only one of those, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. That's kind of the silly version of the early Christian hope. Oh, you want me to say Caesar is Lord? No, there's only one of those and he doesn't look like that. Did Caesar rise from the dead? No? Okay, <laughs> and he's not my Lord. And they were slaughtered for that. They were tortured to death for that. That doctrine mattered enough for them to die. So why would we ever compromise it in our church? This is an un compromisable doctrine. Christ is Lord of all. And if you reject that, you're not one of us. The last one, I've deduced them down to five, and we'll try to be brief as I'm running out of time. The last one is monotheism. As Paul says in verse six, that there is one God. This is perhaps the most consistent dogma of God's true religion throughout the entire Bible. From Old Testament to New Testament has been this emphasis among the Jews, there is only one God. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Shema. They recited this every single day. This was their daily creed. This is what separated Yahweh from all the pagan religions. The pagan religions around Israel, they believed that Yahweh existed. They believed that Israel's God existed, but they just believed their God also existed and that they were in a cosmic war with one another. And then the Jews came along and said, no, 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 no. We're not saying that your God exists and our God is better. We're saying your God doesn't exist. There's only one. Monotheism is such a core doctrine and this is why we do not allow polytheists into the Christian religion. Anyone who believes that there are more than one God is emphatically not a Christian. And as I've already made notice of, it's easy when we think of, hear the word polytheist to associate it with the Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism because they've got all those gods and they worship all those gods. And that's true and that's false. They're false religions. But guess what? It's a true story. Polytheists live next door to me. This is not just some ancient, distant, weird Eastern religion of spiritual mysticism that we don't understand. Your neighbors are polytheists. If they're Mormons, if they're Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm even going to say if they're atheists. Romans 1 doesn't tell us that atheists don't worship God. It tells us that atheists make other things gods. You are surrounded by polytheists. They're everywhere. And it's not welcome in the Christian religion. There's one God. There is one Father. We have no fellowship with false religions. Jehovah's Witnesses who make Jesus a second God, but a lesser God, we have no fellowship with that. There's not two gods. There's not three gods. There's not, as Joseph Smith taught, an infinite amount of gods. There's one God. And then, I'm sorry, I said five. This is the last point. I wish I had more time to elaborate on this. I don't. But point number six is the Trinity itself. The Trinity is not explicitly laid out in this passage, but it's all over this passage. I like the way Charles Hodge described it. He said, There are many passages to which the doctrine of the Trinity gives a sacred rhythm, though the doctrine is not directly asserted. And that is the case here. The Trinity is all over this place. And it is a key doctrine of our faith. And, 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 and it's just very logical. For example, if we don't confess the Trinity, how can you f- confess that we only have one spirit? If the spirit is not God, or if he's just some impersonal force like gravity, how does he have the ability to fill the church? How does the spirit have the ability to fill universally every single Christian if he doesn't share the attributes of God? You see, God alone is omnipresent. Only God can be omnipresent. And only someone who's omnipresent can fill the entire Christian church in every generation, in every age, all around the world. If the, if the Holy Spirit fills you today and fills a believer in China and fills a believer living 100 years ago, he transcends time, he transcends space, he is omnipresent, he shares the character and attributes of God. And yet, we're told in this text that there's only one God. How can the Spirit be presented as a person with divine qualities when there's only one God, the Father? And that is because Paul is working from the assumption of a Trinitarian monotheism. Trinitarianism is a key doctrine of our church. The same thing can be said about Jesus. How can Jesus be the Lord of all without blaspheming God? Isn't God supposed to be the Lord of all? If there's only one Lord, how is it not the Father? Because he's God. Isn't God supposed to be the Lord? If Jesus is not God, then we have Jesus now challenging God. 
saying, I have an equal authority with God. That's called blasphemy unless it's true. You see, the Trinity is not explicitly laid out here, but it is assumed. One of the things that trips people up is they see something like, well, but doesn't this text say that only the Father is the one God? Right? Isn't the Father the only one God? And I would encourage you, if we read this in isolation, you might be led to think of that. But because the Spirit and because the Son have the same essence of the Father, they can actually share titles. Throughout the New Testament, the common way that the Trinity is referred to, the common way is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But because they share the same essence, because there is only actually one being made in three persons, you can actually transfer the titles. Here's what I mean by that. We are told here in this verse that there is only one Lord referring to Jesus. Except for 2 Corinthians 3.17 says the Holy Spirit, He is the Lord. We are told here that there is only one God, the Father. Ooh, except 1 John 5.20 calls Jesus the only true God. You see, the way you read your New Testament is one of two ways. It's either a contradictory mess of confused liars or it's Trinitarian. But the same John who records in John 17, Jesus calling the Father the one true God. That John then turned and wrote an epistle and he called Jesus the one true God. You've got to make sense of that. And I challenge you, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't. The Mormons don't. The Unitarians don't. Because the New Testament is written from a presuppositional perspective that the Trinity is how they understood the monotheistic God. We talked about in Sunday school, last thing I'll say, this is why we are baptized. There's one baptism. And whose name, singular, Matthew 28, 16, we are not baptized into three names. We're baptized into one name, singular. And whose name is it? What's the one name you're baptized into? Father, Son, and Spirit. Isn't that three names? Well, apparently the one name is three persons. (laughs) You are baptized into one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Even the word baptism presupposes the Trinity from a biblical context. This is, again, the Trinity is a cardinal doctrine of our religion. These are the seven dogmas, or I boiled them down to six, and we must agree on these. We must be one accord on these things. If we are not, then unity is not possible and Christ is divided into pieces. 